We know that the um, structures and systems that have supported uh, racism and other forms of oppression have existed for hundreds of years. Uh, structural racism is in fact um, not just a problem, but one that has to be addressed with action. Um, as uh, our colleague, Dr. Sunny Nakai says, we're tired of admiring the problem. There are four levels of racism, internalized racism at the individual level. There's interpersonal racism that occurs between individuals. Then there's institutional racism that occurs within institutions and systems of power. And then there's structural racism, which is amongst institutions, between institutions and across society. What we're finding across this body of equity practitioners, so both Kristen and myself, consider ourselves to be equity practitioners in this space to address uh, racism and all the forms of oppression is this concept of the integration. Integration of um, our equitable practices um, such that, I love that analogy, Kristen, that it becomes baked into what we do as opposed to being a set aside in addition or in a supplemental aspect of the work. I would say a common mistake would be twofold for new institutions doing this work. They will place belonging in equity or DEI work under HR. That's a huge rookie error, <laughs> rookie mistake. Um, and then they will focus, to, focus it just on recruitment and retention. We're now doing way more collaborating than we may have done in the past. We recognize that we're better together um, we're being able to, um, particularly um, in my current organization, we're bringing different uh, groups within the House of Surgery together to collaborate on best practices. That's the starting point, right? That's where we have to have leadership and governance, buy-in and accountability, because it's going to take that type of long-term um, human and financial investment to implement those practices, to create these environments such that everyone from all backgrounds can show up and perform authentically and deliver that excellent level of care. You are listening to the Health Disparities Podcast. I am Claudia Zamora, your host for today's episode. I am the founder and CEO of Samora Consulting Group. We provide healthcare and higher education consulting services. I am also a health equity advocate. I serve on the board of directors for the National Hispanic Medical Association and the board of directors for Women is Life. This is the fourth and final episode in this mini-series of the Health Disparities Podcast in which we have been exploring the mechanisms of bias in medicine and decoding structural and systemic racism in healthcare. In today's episode, we will be discussing some of the ways that health equity initiatives are helping to dismantle systemic bias and racism. These processes of systemic bias and racism are deeply embedded both within our health systems and as a major component of the social determinants of health. Because of this, healthcare, public health, and population health policymakers are placing increasing emphasis on the importance of interdisciplinary solutions across healthcare that are designed to foster intergenerational change. And I am looking forward to discussing some examples with my guests today. Firstly, I am so pleased to welcome back to the podcast, Kristen Solikoffer. Kristen is the Chief Belonging and Equity Officer at Lifespan Health System and has been involved with Movement is Life for many years, including with the Movement is Life community program known as Operation Change. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you, Claudia. It's a pleasure to be here. I am also delighted to have with us today, Dr. Bonnie Simpson Mason. Dr. Simpson Mason has had a long association with Movement is Life. She is the founder of Nth Dimensions, a former VP of DEI for the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, 
and she now serves as the inaugural medical director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at the American College of Surgeons, where she leads the development and implementation of proactive anti-racism, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. Welcome, Dr. Bonnie Simpson Mason. Thank you so much. Really, really happy to be here with everyone. And so we are here to discuss solutions, how we are moving forward in terms of ending the systemic bias and systemic racism, not in theory, but in actual practice. Dr. Simpson Mason, could we start by asking you to talk about some of the ways that programs that you have been involved with in the past are steering in this direction? Well, thank you so much. Um, of course, the scope of this problem is, is huge and historical in nature. We know that the um, structures and systems that have supported uh, racism and other forms of oppression have existed for hundreds of years. When it comes to um, thinking about solutions and uh, the systems that are have been in place and that are now in place to address them, um, we think in terms of really addressing some levels of accountability for addressing issues of racism, sexism, and other forms of oppression. Um, I like to think about it in terms of what's happening at a leadership level or leadership or governance level in medicine. I think about it in terms of what's happening at an institutional level, workforce level, and even at a patient care level. Um, that's how I've been able to categorize, you know, kind of the breadth of the issue to help it make it make sense for me. So when it came to um, the early part of my career um, as an orthopedic surgeon transitioning out of clinical medicine due to an illness, I knew that it would be really important to make sure that we could address the inequities in healthcare by uh, increasing access. And one way to increase access to care is to increase the numbers of physicians and particularly in my case, orthopedic surgeons who were from minoritized backgrounds, helping them find their way into these highly competitive fields. So in dimensions over the past 20 years now has um, become the premier, formerly used the term pipeline program. Now we use the word pathway program to help usher um, those from minoritized backgrounds, including from racial ethnic um, populations that are diverse, as well as women, into orthopedics. That work has been found to be extremely impactful. Over time, 30% of the graduates from the Interventions Pathway Program have matched into orthopedics as women. That's significant because 5% of practicing orthopedic surgeons are women. And so Interventions has been able to 6X that number. And then also, too, out of the 130 scholars from Interventions that are now either in orthopedic surgery residency or are in practice, 80 of those 130 are African-American. Also significant because overall, uh, only 1.5% of practicing orthopedic surgeons are African-American. That equates to about 375 physicians who are African-American in practice. And Infamentions is now contributing 80 to that number. So over time, we found that these pathway programs, which provide a longitudinal developmental pathway of support by way of mentoring, education, resources, and networking, have found to be impactful at that workforce level of addressing inequities um, in healthcare. And then, you know, we can look at, I think Kristen is going to address some of the institutional approaches that she's been instrumental in leading but also from an institutional and maybe even leadership approach, some of our accrediting bodies, um, such as the ACGME, where I worked previously, um, has developed a national GME educational platform called Equity Matters that I was um, truly honored to um, innovate and develop as uh, vice president there. And that work has now allowed a breadth of understanding and education to be digested across the spectrum of at least graduate medical education across the country. As the accreditor, that's a big deal 
It's the institution that accredits all residency training programs and institutions. So for that organization to bring forth just a really comprehensive platform in order to educate our faculty and trainees in this space in order to address uh, more equitable care, uh, it's huge. It's huge. And then also, um, and I'll just wrap up, um, medical specialty societies such as um, where I am now at the ACS, but also those who are under the umbrella of the Council for Medical Specialty Societies, led by Dr. Helen Burston, who's the current CEO. Um, many of our medical specialty societies um, are proactively addressing um, issues regarding diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism, anti-oppression, um, with the basis of that understanding and increased knowledge base as to how to, um, number one, boldly acknowledge that uh, structural racism is, in fact, um, not just a problem, but one that has to be addressed with action. Um, as uh, our colleague, Dr. Sunny Nakai says, we're tired of admiring the problem. Um, but we um, we know that these groups are um, galvanizing through education and communication, their members across the spectrum of specialties um, to address the different um, impacts of structural racism across the board for um, those at the workforce level, but also, and most importantly, their patients. Thank you, Dr. Simpson Mason. Um, now, Kristen, could you answer the same question regarding ways that lifespan health system is addressing systemic bias and systemic racism? So and I just want to applaud Dr. Mason because she's done, her programs have done amazing work in pathway programs and um, just looking at her impact over the course of her career um, across industries really impacting the physician space. So um, phenomenal work, strong work as the surgeons say, right? <laughs> um, I'll speak to what we're doing at the institutional level, right? Because there are four levels of racism um, in those four levels, just to reiterate, and Dr. Mason spoke to these as well as the internalized racism at the individual level. There's interpersonal racism that occurs between individuals. Then there's institutional racism that occurs within institutions and systems of power. And then there's structural racism, which is amongst institutions, between institutions and across society. So it's helpful to know that there's four levels. A lot of folks, when they use the word racism, we really don't isolate those and, and it occurs at every single level. So I'll speak to an institutional level because um, we operate as a health system. We have multiple hospitals, most academic medical centers do have multiple locations. And just the same, we have community locations too. So the image that I use for our work is a cake. So before you bake the cake, you have the ingredients off to the side, right? You have your eggs, your sugar, your vanilla, your flour. But once you mix everything together and then you bake it, when you take a slice of it, you can't identify and separate out those individual ingredients. So the cake represents diversity, equity, and inclusion at its best excellence where you can't parse it out. It's baked in to the system. So when I think of being it baked in, my role is responsible for both the patient experience as well as our employee experience. So when I think of system work, I think of both groups for all of our employees. Um, and usually at the health system, that's what you're thinking about, right? So we have about 18,000 folks, um, and that's physicians, nurses, frontline staff, registration, literally our back-end support when it comes to IS or IT and uh, resources. So when I think about that, we do our work in a few different categories and buckets, and we look at data. How clean is our data? How consistent is our data collection processes? We And, and that's um, for collecting across race, ethnicity, and language, including sexual orientation, gender identity, um, disability status, veteran status, and gender. Um, we also look at our community presence. How are we connecting and using equity practices to and give us information, whether that's through a, a unified patient family advisory council, 
Um, are we looking at community organizations such as employee resource groups internally, where we're asking for folks who are impacted by our policies to give us information back? Yes, we're doing a good job. No, we're not. But even before it becomes policy, we want to ask their opinion. Because if you're going to be impacted by the policy, you should have some say in what it, how it reads and how it lands. Um, that's a strong equity practice. And then we also look at how are we educating our workforce, um, skills building. And that has a variety of layers, right? We're looking at our recruitment and retention. How do we partner with organizations, um, the departments, I'm sorry, across our health system, whether it's compliance, policy, um, marketing, legal, right? Our language interpreter services, our food nutrition services. How are we partnering with each one of those departments to embed and bake in diversity, equity, and inclusion principles so that our employees and our patients not only feel safe, but are also, we're creating health and we're creating care, delivering care. And then I would also say the last component is, um, once again, creating that environment that's safe and healthy. Claudia, could I could I weigh in just oh, on sure. a couple of Please. commonalities that uh, Kristen shared that um, kind of ring true to much of the uh, work to address structural racism, um, even at institutional and association uh, systemic levels, which we really love. What we're finding across this body of equity practitioners, so both Kristen and myself consider ourselves to be equity practitioners in this space to address uh, racism and all the forms of oppression is this concept of the integration, integration of um, our equitable practices um, such that, I love that analogy, Kristen, that it becomes baked into what we do as opposed to being a set aside in addition or in a supplemental aspect of the work. It just becomes part of the fabric of who we are, how we conduct ourselves, and hopefully it becomes integrated into the culture such that it just it just is it becomes part of the water we're breathing in. So whereas this this you know air and atmosphere of racism that has been part of the dominant culture for so long becomes infiltrated with equity practices that then our environments, which is the ultimate goal, then become inclusive. They become um, places where people from all backgrounds feel like they belong, where people are empowered to, number one, recognize and then mitigate um, the manifestations of any form of oppression, including um, racism, sexism, any type of um, discrimination, mistreatment, or harassment, because in that space, especially if we're talking in healthcare, then whether you are teaching, whether you are providing care, um, you are in a space where you feel like you can show up authentically, where you can be yourself, um, where you feel like you belong, to your point, right, Kristen? So that then I can be my best self in this space. And then my best self as a healthcare provider, physician, staff person, faculty, environmental services person, this allows me to deliver the best and most excellent care to every patient that I come in contact with. That's how we overall hope that this work will begin to stem the inequities in the delivery and access to care and ultimately decrease the disparities that are the outcomes of hundreds of years of inequitable care delivery and access. So kind of like that overall overarching um, approach is just something that we're seeing across the board. And so if anyone's organization is not highly invested in making sure that they are providing the resources, the um, finances, the strategic plan, putting that in place such that this becomes an integral part of what any organization is doing, that's the starting point, right? That's where we have to have leadership and governance, buy-in and accountability, because it's going to take that type of long-term um, human and financial investment to implement those practices, to create these environments such that everyone from all backgrounds can show up and perform authentically and deliver that excellent level of care. If they stem the, stem the disparities that are the result of the inequities um, over time. I know I probably repeated myself, 
like get all charged right. up, right, Kristen? That's right. It's okay. Get charged <laughs> up. We like a charged up conversation. It's okay. And, you know, to, to say that, you know, when folks are listening to this, she mentioned the water and there's a phenomenal, um, the groundwater theory, by all means, go ahead and look that up as a little bit of your homework. It'll give you some backstory to this. And I know we were talking about programs. Oh, there's so many programs within hospital systems. I will talk about Operation Change. Operation mm-hmm. Change was is a little bit different. And that was really sponsored by Movement is Life. Phenomenal, phenomenal program. Community-based. Um, I was um, integral to our Chicago location. And let me just tell you, Operation Change was powerful. It was meant to target and attract women only who were 45 years and older in specific demographic groups. So there, there's one specific to African-American women, one that's um, specific to our Hispanic, Latina, Latinx women, and another for our rural women. And what it did was it invited folks directly from the community. And so I know we had probably 75 folks per every summer for 18 weeks. And for 18 weeks, every single weekend, it was a grind, y'all. Every single weekend for three hours from 9 a.m. to noon, we had the first hour, which we would bring subject matter experts in. And the second hour, we would move. And then the third hour, we would um, have motivational interviewing. I'll I'll go into a little bit detail for each one of those hours. So for the first hour for subject matter expertise, experts, we would have every single week, whether it's financial literacy, um, your local pharmacist, and how are you talking to, um, look at it all, we would have a pharmacist come in and look at everyone's meds to see if there were any counterindications. We would have someone who would talk about how to eat differently. We would have someone who talked about Medicare plans in time for enrollment to prepare them. We would have folks who were talking about behavioral health and suicidal ideation or self-care. What does it look like? And I tell you, these women, phenomenal women, we're looking at literacy rates. Some of them may have had a third grade education. Uh, They may even have a PhD, but we're all in one space. They've They've all either had children, lost children, were in relationships single now alone. And I would tell you the commonality from these folks was that they needed community. They wanted to feel supported. I tell you, I get emotional. Dr. Mason knows I'm a sap on the inside. So if I get choked up, it's okay. But I tell you, sometimes on that Saturday, when we would hug them, that would be the only time someone touched them all week. You can't underestimate the power of a hug and human connection. Because we talk about trauma-informed responses, that is so key and critical to doing this work. The answer to every single trauma-informed response is human connection. So I'll leave that there because I know I think we have no, I love that because um I had the, the pleasure of um was the first probably first few years of Operation Change uh there in Chicago. I had the um honor of delivering some of those first hour uh <laughs> lectures just about self-care, about the importance of uh, communicating with your physician. Um, I remember one time we were in the basement of the local church and that was where the meetings were being held. So we would do the first hour of lecture and then we would exercise and then commune afterwards. And you're absolutely right. I mean, um, those uh, women I mean, made me feel loved as a part of that community. And I was there to give, and I certainly turned out receiving more than I gave in that space. But then to watch them over time reap the actual benefits and to know, to your point, Kristen, just the absolute uh, power of community, necessity of community, how isolation is like kryptonite when we're trying to manifest, move, change, and actual transformation in the space. I mean, I think the formula that Operation Change has built, developed, and proven is the formula for change. Mm-hmm. 
you know, if you're going to ask me, I mean, my husband came to lecture, colleagues, you, you know, you yourself and others. I mean, it takes that multi-disciplinary, multi-level, longitudinal approach, but it can happen, right? And I think that's what they saw in each other, to your point, the vulnerabilities, but also it became an empowering experience, empowering, reinforcing, and positivity, you know, always emerged from that environment. Um, And then they knew they, you know, they knew they could do it and they knew they weren't alone. Mm-hmm. And we, so then it felt like a we and not just a me or an I. That's and, the truth. And I've, and I've found that in all of the work, you know, at any level between education and communication, that's how transformation takes place and, you know, takes place in this space. Like you said, through that trauma informed lens and putting those two things together um, along with that longitudinal support. I think those are the critical keys. Um, So if you're going to change, move change at the um, community-based level for patients, you know, outside of the traditional healthcare model, integrating and innovating the way operation change has, I think is critical. Oh, it's completely critical. And it was the secret sauce was that you would have motivational interviewers and subject matter experts and folks who will come in and help you move a Zumba dance or aerobic instructor, um, yoga instructor. They all looked and talked like you. They use the same language, the same dialect, the same dialogue. Um, They knew your language. So you had folks who looked like you, race concordance, cultural concordance, language concordance, right? And you're meeting them where they are. And you're providing information. And I think also, this was a brilliant decision by Verona Bruton to design this course because women uplift communities. We're the ones who will nurture. We were the ones who will share. We were the, we are the ones. And I can tell you so many women were inspired to join a group, create a group, a support group, whether it was over knitting or cooking or going out or going to dance or doing yoga. What stemmed from Operation Change was information. So you got them moving, but you also informed them and empowered them. And that was brilliant. Brilliant. But women are the change agents with uh, before change agents were like a thing. <laughs> <laughs> is there another program that you would mention that is having an impact? And can you tell us why it is important? You know, I think I think we can look at impacts from any number of levels and look at um, any any number of communities that are involved. We have. If we look at our Hispanic um, uh, population, we have the National Hispanic Medical Association. We have the Latino Medical Student Association. We have Ben Gap that uh, was founded and led by um, a good friend, John P. Sanchez, um, that uh, has been working to increase the numbers of um, folks from diverse populations who stay in academic medicine to become the mentors to encourage, influence, and educate the next generation of medical students from um, diverse backgrounds. I mean, we have these organizations, I'll say, that have been doing this work for years, right? Before DEI was a thing, before we were talking about anti-racism um, nationally um, or globally, this work has been going on for decades. Um, um, and I'll even state that even two decades ago, um, the national, um, I think it was the Institute of Medicine at that point, had ID- even identified equity as being the sixth domain of delivering quality and safe care. So they said, if you're not addressing equity in your policies or practices in um, healthcare delivery, you're not fully delivering um, quality and safe care. So um, I think that's you know kind of one of the ways that people have been picking up on to say, listen, it's not new. It's not about you know a whole um, new ideology around being woke. It's not new. It's been around for decades and really just coming to the forefront. And then as we see 
folks that we were talking about are Hispanic population, um, like the Latino Surgical Society, the um, American Association of Latino Orthopedic Surgeons. And I'm sure that uh, there's a, a full scope of work and um, solutions in this space. You know, we see them being identity-based. We see them um, being based on, you know, different cultural aspects, um, meaning the solutions being based on different cultural aspects by these organizations, which I'm really happy to say we're now doing way more collaborating than we may have done in the past. We recognize that we're better together. Um, we're being able to, um, particularly um, in my current organization, we're bringing different uh, groups within the House of Surgery together to collaborate on best practices. Who's been doing work at the pathway program level? Who's been doing work at the um, residency um, medical education level um, in terms of building curriculum? Who's been doing faculty development and leadership training when it comes to um, DEI and anti-racism? Um, by convening you know, all of these folks who have been conducting, you know, data-driven, um, research-based um, approaches, we, you know, hope, we hope soon to be able to um, uh, be able to impact um, the um, healthcare workforce in a way that continues to support their efforts um, and be able to move those work forward and integrating all of these um, efforts across the House of Surgery, but also the House of Medicine as well. Um, I will also um, pick up on one last um, component. Kristen, I think you mentioned this um, early on, and that was how your institution is addressing um, data. One uh, important aspect that we um, found to be a commonality across associations, institutions, programs, um, and educational um, organizations hinges on the issue of data equity. We don't have, we've not achieved that yet. We found that our institutions um, many times collect um, data um, in a disparate fashion. Um, we're not collecting the same data, even on the same populations and cohorts of not just patients, but when it comes to our workforce. So there have been some efforts at the highest levels of the American Medical Association, the um, ACGME, um, as well as the AAMC to align um, and start to agree on some data equity efforts such that we can build a research infrastructure which um, is reflective of you know, sound data um, collection practices such that that data can be analyzed uh, more um, efficiently and with greater um, impact on the back end. We know that that has to happen at the patient level as well. That's been a huge kind of uh, opportunity that has been recognized and is now being, I'll just say, reconciled across some of these major organizations that influence medical education and healthcare. Um, across the country. Without that, you know, we ca you can't change what you don't measure. So if we don't have clean data in, you're not going to get clean data or conclusions out. So that's why, you know, the push towards data equity, including a uh, de-aggregation of many of our um, racial ethnic groups is really, really important. Uh, and the inclusion of other identity-based identifiers is also really important to, to add in. Um, so in addition to having, you know, these efforts as an integral part of your institutional organizational structure, you know, achieving data equity or addressing the lack thereof in your um, particular arena uh, is critically important. Thank you, Dr. Simpson Mason. These are all great examples of leadership in health equity. And actually, you know, I'm, I, I was literally just thinking about what you said about how you worked um, in uh, the ACGME, Roger Medical Education. In my work, uh, in consulting, I actually help uh, accredit new allopathic medical schools. And one of the things I've seen, the first medical school that I worked on was Herbert Wortham College of Medicine in Miami in 2007. Back in 2007, we were um, talking about how there was only like 5% of Hispanic physicians in the U.S. Now we're in 2023. And I think the needle has moved maybe 1.5%. 
So it's like we we think we're progressing, but not really. So um, one of the things that I thought was great that the LCME, Liaison Committee on Medical Education, uh, did was uh, they reevaluated their standards, and one of them being diversity, and saying, you know, whoever you're targeting as your um, matriculants, they also need to uh, be reflected in like the dean's uh, suite, the faculty, how many number of faculty, you know, the, the diversity has to be there. And that is great that the new medical schools are able to do that, where what I saw in some existing schools, because they've already been established, they were not compliant with that particular diversity standard. So all of them had to then kind of like regroup and say how we're going to meet this standard to make sure we are really encompassing everything that we're saying. So when you, when, you know, you said about that, I thought, well, you know, it's, it's really, we all have the common goal of that's what we need to do in order to get a diverse healthcare workforce. You know, in addition, I will, you know, I want to mention, you know, you did mention the National Hispanic Medical Association. That's the other board that I sit on. And their main mission is to empower Hispanic physicians to lead efforts to improve health of Hispanics and other underserved populations. And, you know, one of the things that we keep coming on is research keeps showing that health outcomes are driven by an array of factors, including social, economic, environmental factors, significant racial and ethnic disparities that exist in, in Hispanic populations and other underserved populations. So one of the things that NHMA does is we collaborate with Hispanic health, um, state medical societies, residents, medical students, and other public and private sector partners to help reduce the health um, equity app by tackling social determinants of health. And one of the ways, just an example that we do that is, you know, NHMA has 18 chapters across the U.S. So each year, you know, we bring in uh, health experts to educate congressional staff, national and um, local stakeholders on policies and programs that can you know, actually improve the health of our communities. And every year during an annual conference, we actually go to the Hill. We meet with Senate, we meet with the Congress to discuss the most pressing issues concerning our communities, not just Hispanics, but all underserved communities. And also we're trying to you know, increase scholarships to get more minorities in uh, in healthcare workforce, in order to you know help develop the next generation of culturally competent physicians, which seems to be what is missing in you know tackling this um, health equity app. So these are just I wanted to just give some examples how NHMA is working to tackle structural and systemic racism in healthcare. Now um, I'm really interested to hear from both of you about what makes initiatives work. What are some critical uh, success factors for initiatives aimed at ending systemic racism that you always include in the planning process? So immediately what comes to mind is change management. This is change management. And when you're looking at change management, you're looking at planning, intentional communication, and understanding your resistance. A lot of folks expect that when you're doing this work that you need everyone at the table. But I can tell you, and they're worried about those who are detractors or those who are on the extreme ends of, you know, being open-minded or being rigid, right? But this, that movable middle that is most powerful. And that movable middle is about 60% technically in general, right? And so you're looking to influence them, educate them, and empower them to be able to make the change. And you have to bring them to the table. Right. So there's a level of collaboration that you always want to be able to increase. So to me, it's two key components, change management and collaboration. I agree wholeheartedly when it comes to the change management piece. I uh, encourage uh, many of the physicians and executives that um, I have the pleasure of engaging with on the subject with um, routinely is that this is a process. So change management requires time. And we let people know that this is a marathon, not a sprint. Um, and I, I highlight and have um, identified what I call the steps behind the science of DEI and anti-racism uh, steps, which starts with um, you know, making sure that we understand um, the scope of the problem within one's uh, immediate community or environment. So really performing a needs assessment. Then you can build um, out um, 
or utilize some of the educational tools that have been put in place, uh, such as Equity Matters and, and the work we're doing in the House of Surgery to address the fundamentals of DEI. Because having people understand the definition of equity, um, we like the definition of equity promoted by um, Dr. Kamara Jones, who is a, also a friend of Movement is Life, um, that um, achieving equity requires that we value all persons and populations equally, that we recognize and rectify historic and current injustices, and that we also provide resources according to need, and I add, without judgment. That helps people understand why they're in the room. This problem can't be solved by just those who are from um, um, diverse or minoritized backgrounds. This has to be a solution, set of solutions driven by everyone, but we have to let everyone know why they are part of the solution. Then we have to provide skills and training opportunities such that people can do this work, implement equity, build and implement equity practices in a way that's trauma-informed, meaning we don't cause more harm although we intend to do good, right? So we have to take this trauma-aware and trauma-informed approach to um, building skills in order to do the work. And then we get to actually do the work, right? We, we put the steps in change, towards change management um, in place through our programs, our efforts, our practices. And then we get to take a look back at it to see how we did, right? Evaluate um, and assess did we move the needle or not? Was that effective or not? If not, why not? And then we make some adjustments. We call it like um, an equity, morbidity, and mortality review, an M&M, uh, &M where we take a look back and see what we did. So, you know, it's not just a one-time, one-touch approach. All of the programs, the work that Kristen has been doing at the institutional level, the work of Nth Dimensions, even Equity Matters, and the work we're doing at the college, it's all longitudinally based um, operation change over time, right? It's change management over time. Um, and so um, I, I don't know that we're going to solve it, but I know that we can effectively address it one step at a time, but that requires that people employ a level of patience and commitment in this space um, such that we can actually recognize the transformation, which, you know, we hope will ultimately occur. And what are some of the common mistakes that initiatives make, however well-intentioned they are, that our listeners can bear in mind? You know what? I would say one of the common mistakes would be that <clears throat> they expect, and it's one of the dominant culture norms, right? Tokenism. You're expecting those who represent a minoritized group to give you all the answers. And what that doesn't do is one, it doesn't hold the majority accountable for doing their own learning, right? It puts an extra tax on those who are tokenized and um, it absolves folks of their own responsibility. What, I, what I've learned at the institutional level is that most folks have the best of intentions and they want to do this work. But our educational system in this country doesn't teach you how to share. It doesn't give you the truth. It doesn't tell you what you don't know. So a lot of times when we present information in the skills building and we give them historical context, it is new information to them. And they are wowed. But not only is it new information, they don't have the tools to then understand how to mitigate and educate and rebuild. So I, I spend a good amount of my time coaching folks and empowering them and giving them tools to teach them how to do the work. They don't know how to do the work. Um, we, if, if we come from a minoritized group, we know it feels good. We know it feels good to be included. We know that if you have more people like us at the table, it's a better conversation. It feels great. There's some camaraderie, right? That's why you see affinity groups. But if you don't, if you come from a space where you see yourself all the time, you really don't know how another person feels. So when I think about this work, a common mistake would be one that you don't put folks at the table and hold them accountable, right? Whether they're majority or um, in positions of power, it's accountability. So once you set expectations, then how do you hold them accountable? So if they didn't know, you teach them, but then you hold them accountable. 
And then when I also think about um, skills building, uh, you bring other folks into this work. I would say a common mistake would be twofold for new institutions doing this work. They will place belonging in equity or DEI work under HR. That's a huge rookie error, <laughs> rookie mistake. Um, and then they will focus, to, focus it just on recruitment and retention. That is one sliver of how equity shows up within healthcare. One sliver. It does need work. But you have to hold those folks accountable who do the work in every single day. I call that the distributive method. So when you are empowering folks in their scope of work to then become subject matter experts to move DEI forward, that's how you get accelerated growth. So someone in compliance, someone in HR, someone in talent acquisition, someone in um, food nutrition services, someone in um, marketing, right? You skill them up and empower them. Go to their national professional resources and skill them up. How do you do DEI? How do you embed it in your scope of work? Our legal team, our EAs, everyone plays a part in doing this work. And if you don't teach them and empower them, they will think that they are absolved of their responsibility. I mean, I, I just totally agree with everything you said, um, Kristen. I mean, it is not and can't be on the shoulders of the people who are from the minoritized group. And just to make a point of, of clarification here, um, we are using the word minoritized because um, someone is not a minority, right? So that is not who a person is. They are part of a group that has been marginalized, that has been set on the margins, that has been deemed a minority, right? So there is an action that has been placed on a particular group that has made them minoritized, but I am not a minority. I am a whole human being who belongs to um, a group I identify as a woman and as um, a, a Black woman. So I am part of minoritized groups um, as it relates to um, the majority um, race and gender in this country, which forms an opportunity for groups to be minoritized or marginalized. Moved. So we want to speak to the systems of, of power and authority that um, have enacted these um, things on different groups that identify as diverse um, not that the group itself is a minority in and of itself. Kristen might be able to explain it a little bit more eloquently than myself, but we want to focus on the root cause versus the downstream um, effect, right? Mm -hmm. So we want to we want to make sure that people know that um, inequities in access to care cause the outcomes, which are the disparities in morbidity and mortality for our um, for our minoritized groups in this country. It's not that someone set out to be a minority. This was part and the result of the system of oppression over hundreds of years that has resulted in these outcomes. You said it just perfectly. Um, and, and, and if I were to add anything, it would just be um, a supplement, quite frankly. And uh, the AMA, the American Medi Medical Association, put out a couple of years ago a phenomenal resource that was really race-based, but it was a lexicon for language. And, and it really talks about equity practices in first-person language. So speaking to the person, not the conditions that they're living under, or against, so a person with a disability or a person who's experiencing or with obesity or a person who is experiencing housing insecurity, that yeah. is not who they are. It is what they are experiencing. For my final question for the discussion is really about how optimistic can we be that things are changing? It seems that even in your respective job titles, we see evidence that organizations are being more intentional about ending systemic bias and racism and are also backing up that intention with actual resources. But at the same time, many health disparities continue to widen. So to what extent will you say that a health equity ecosystem has become established and is being effective? It depends on the maturity of your organization. A lot of folks think it's a one-size-fits-all approach, and it's not. 
So this is a long, slow process. This is long, close, slow work. And you can't just jump into action at first. So it really depends on where your organization is. If your organization has been doing this for 15, 20 years, you're at a season level. You should be seeing transformational change. But for our organization, I just finished my first inaugural year as I'm opening the belonging and equity department. So we're still on the infancy stages where we're putting in the infrastructure. And so I would say, um, once again, it depends on the maturity of your organization. I am optimistic. If we touch one person, that's a huge deal, but we're touching thousands and thousands. And I, and I have to marvel at Dr. Mason's work because she's touching physicians across the the country, right? If not the world. And um, I'm pleased to say that, you know, when I come into my space, that we're impacting change too. Our organization may only have about 18,000, but those 18,000 are going back home. We're giving them skills. They're going home and teaching their children. They're going to their community organizations and passing the messages along. So I am optimistic that we are moving the needle. I do think that, you know, we can be hopeful. We get to be realistic um, and recognize and strategically manage the pushback that we are getting. But I do think we're having far more conversations using um, accurate terminology and lexicon, using that education change management lens in this space in far more arenas and environments than we ever have before. Um, And with that being said, you know, we can only, uh, you know, even though I say hope is not a strategy, we can only hope that we are moving the needle sometimes one person at a time, particularly because DEI and anti-oppression work is relationship driven um, and requires individual reflection um, with um, outward impact. Um, So I I would say, well, Kristen and I have to hold on to hope if we're going to continue doing this work every day. So, So yes. Many thanks to my guests for a great discussion today. Thank you, Dr. Bonnie Simpson-Mason. Absolutely. Uh, Kristen, as always, I appreciate your leadership and your wisdom. Thank you for um, continuing to educate me and holding up the torch. Claudia, thank you also for uh, guiding us through this session. Movement is life. Operation change. Yay. Thank you. And thank you, Kristen Solikoffer from Lifespan Health Systems. Thank you, Dr. Mason. It was a pleasure to present with you. Thank you, Claudia, for such a robust conversation. And thank you, Movement is Life. And I am Claudia Zamora saying thank you for listening. And please join us again soon when speakers from the upcoming Movement is Life Annual Summit will be joining us to share their perspectives on health disparities and health equity. Until then, be safe and be well.